0: Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the only place to hear cutting edge Climatech founders pitch their businesses in real time and on a podcast. I'm Nick van Osdahl, let's jump in. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Keep Cool Show. We've all seen it, parades of announcements about new equity funding rounds for startups. Whether it's in climate tech or another industry, these have become a staple of the business landscape in recent years. Companies love announcing how much money they've raised and from whom, and venture capitalists love touting their new investments. And the whole time, the numbers seem to just keep going up. It'd be easy to think that venture capital investing is all there is. Of course, there's many more options when it comes to financing a business, all of which can be equally, if not more important or impactful compared to venture investing. I'm here today with Dmitry Gershenson, the CEO and co-founder of Enduring Planet, Enduring Planet wants to bring revenue-based financing, which is both fast and non-dilutive, to the climate tech space. In the future, they'll also roll out lots more financing options that can reduce the cost of capital for critical climate tech businesses. In this conversation, Dimitri and I go deep on all things financing and climate tech. More than half a trillion dollars flowed into this space last year. So why do we predominantly hear about venture and equity, even if those don't constitute even half of the full picture? Dimitri and I also spend time digging deep on his own founding journey, as it has considerable parallels for the businesses he's now helping grow with revenue-based financing. I also especially enjoyed getting Dimitri's perspective on non-financial factors, or at least what seem like non-financial factors, in lending. The Enduring Planet team does an exceptional job of intentionally and specifically focusing on diverse founders and founding teams in climate. Not just because they think it's the right thing to do, but because they also think it'll drive strong business results for them over the long haul. Sound like a good set of topics to unpack? We cover lots more in the margins. Let's dive in. All right, Dimitri, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. Thank you, sir. How's it going? Big couple weeks for Enduring Planet, launching out into the public eye for the first time.
1: Yeah, it's going well. I think all startups go through this roller coaster that's daily weekly monthly cadence of ups and downs and so <laughs> last week with TechCrunch coming out this week feels kind of slow and inadequate and then next week something else will happen and then nothing will happen and it will just keep going and eventually we'll either be successful or we won't <laughs> <laughs>
0: Right. No, I mean, I can relate. There's weeks in operating a media business where it's like, okay, yeah, this newsletter really crushed it. So many people responded and seemed to enjoy it. And we grew X amount last month. And then there's other weeks where it's like, I'm um, just doing interviews and covering the news. And there's not as many dopamine hits coming from that as there were last week for whatever reason. So I'm curious, actually, like what, you, I know you're early into that experience, but what are you finding is a good way to reorient your perspective and, and keep working? So I have... Uh general anxiety disorder. I
1: struggle sometimes to reorient myself. Mm. You know, obviously finding things that distract me, exercise, hanging out with my four-year-old, those will help me sort of ground myself. Mm -hmm. But I think in general, I just lean on my team. And so if I'm not feeling great, I check in with my co-founder or my head of product. And I'm like, how are you feeling? And usually we're not all on the same page. And so we can kind of lift each other up and then Worst case, I'll reach out to my board and say, hey, other companies, you know, doing what we might be doing. Where are they? What are your expectations? Are we meeting your expectations? And generally, that helps sort of bolster whatever feelings of inadequacy or imposter syndrome I might be having.
0: Yeah, that's I mean, thanks for being transparent and a little bit vulnerable about that. And it also sounds like you have a pretty healthy and strong relationship with your team and being able to talk about that I before we get listeners up to speed on what you all do I'd actually love to dig a little deeper on how that core team formed at enduring planet and how those relationships have grown yes so we came out of a venture studio
1: which means that in some ways I had a core team before the company was even really formed so I had a board before the company was really formed two of my board members are the co-founders of enduring ventures which is the kind of venture studio we came out of Xavier and Sieva they're both Repeat founders, investors, they've kind of done run the gamut. And I'd worked with them for about a year. And when I told them about the idea for Enduring Planet, they were really jazzed to sort of support it. And so I had their guidance, their wisdom through the process of sort of scoping the idea, engaging key stakeholders, really building out the thesis. And then we formed the company in May of last year. And I knew from the start that there were sort of two things I needed in a co-founder. I knew I needed a co-founder. This was not a business that I could build on my own. Gotcha. One, I needed deeper credit expertise on the core team. I really needed someone who had done a lot of transactions, structured a lot of different credit transactions, ideally had raised capital into a debt vehicle. I wanted someone who... like I'd invested in lenders in the clean tech and climate space before, but I'd never been a lender. And so I really wanted to bring someone on board that did that. And I also uh, really wanted to build a team that did not look like me. Nice. And so when I lo- went looking for a co-founder, I was like, okay, they're not, they're not going to look like me. No one's going to mistake
0: us for one another.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. For the purposes of listeners who can't see me, I'm a yeah. white guy. I'm a, I'm a privileged white guy. So I like, yeah, there's two privileged to, white guys on the phone talking to each with other. That other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I I started reaching out to folks in the clean tech credit ecosystem that I knew. And one of the people that I reached out to uh, is now my co-founder, Erin Davis. She had started a fund called SEMA. And SEMA is a lender to clean tech companies all over the called the developing world they lend in sub-saharan africa india pakistan they raised three funds a couple hundred million dollars not badass not small potatoes yeah and Erin was one of the three founding team members so she helped raise a lot of the capital structure a lot of the funds and the products and did a bunch of lending managed a bunch of analysts like she had this incredible depth of expertise and she also had a really compelling network of institutional capital providers that we could potentially source our money from. Mm -hmm. And she was just coming off maternity leave. And when I told her about the idea and we started sort of workshopping it a little bit, she got really excited and me to build Enduring Planet in July of 2021. We hired two analysts both of whom had worked with Aaron in the past, actually both based in Pakistan. They're both like really badass women who- Fantastic. No credit. I mean, it's just incredible, incredible talent. And then we also added a head of product and that hire came as a result of an introduction from one of our investors, Dan at Kiki Capital, connected us with Josh to just help us think through product. He was supposed to be this like part-time consultant. and fractional uh, product. Yeah, guy. He started to help us with our MVP release and we like went through the process, decided we needed somebody full-time. Josh initially was like, no, I'm, I'm like fractional. I do this with a bunch of people, blah, blah, blah. And so we did a full search and started interviewing people. And then one day I get a message from Josh <laughs> saying, hey, I really love what we've built and I don't really want to do anything else. So I'm going to ditch all my <laughs> other clients and I want to work on this full-time with you. And it was a no-brainer. Josh is incredible. He had helped build Swing Left, which was a pretty powerful organization uh, around sort of voter engagement. And I'd seen the products he had built before. And even though he didn't have a lot of or really any fintech background, his ability to like bring developers together, channel vision, listen to customers, like all the pieces that you need in a head of
0: product was just that was a pretty good. Well, that was one of those days that sets the bar really high and makes it anticlimactic to to go back to the normal slog of doing diligence on deals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's you know, it's I wouldn't call it a slog. Well, I that's love probably it. why you're why you're doing what you're doing. That's wanting, right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so yeah, to catch to catch the listeners who might be a little less familiar than I up to speed on what you do, I'd be interested to hear you kind of give the sixty second pitch on enduring planet now. And then maybe we can talk about whether that's changed from when you were first pitching someone like maybe Aaron to join you. Yeah, so I think the short version
1: is we are a FinTech lender that is exclusively focused on the new climate economy. Mm -hmm. We provide fast, simple, founder-friendly, non-dilutive capital to entrepreneurs of all shapes and colors and sizes today in the US, but eventually globally. We currently fund exclusively through our revenue based financing product, uh, which is an unsecured credit instrument, no collateral, no personal guarantees, no warrants, no dilution, like no bullshit, very straightforward. And, but that's just our first instrument. So we've actually done a pilot deal with a different structure already that we hope to grow and expand quite dramatically which will serve a different subset of climate entrepreneurs and in the long term the vision is to create a platform where a whether you're an smb a venture backable startup doesn't matter if you're working in climate you can come to us and raise non-dilutive funding at any stage of your journey Mm -hmm. with the best terms you can find in the market
0: gotcha And so you say it'll always be a focus on nine non-dilutive sources of of financing. You don't imagine that at some point down the road, you might spring up like a small venture fund on the side. You know, there's a lot of venture in the market already.
1: It's nowhere near enough. Sure. But I think the sort of theory, the values, the incentive structures behind venture are very different than debt. And we think that there's value in the focus. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're already focusing, you're already making a very explicit choice to focus exclusively on climate. So you've already gone narrow in one sense. Sometimes it helps to continue to go even more narrow. Part of our argument is that betting on climate is not
1: so narrow. That's true too. (laughs) Um, So our theory of of the future is that the entire economic system of the world needs to change. Mm Mm-hmm. And if we can support that transition and invest in that transition, then we get to ride the wave. uh, And we think that wave is going to be quite dramatic.
0: Yeah, let's hope. Um, Before we go much deeper on some of that stuff, because there was a lot of interesting things that I want to double click on there. I am still curious whether you have already evolved in the way that you think about Enduring Planet from where you started in May of last year. Yeah. The initial idea for Enduring
1: Planet was to build a company where we would lend against future carbon offsets. Mm. So that was the first theory. And the reason for that, so I sit on the board of a another climate tech business that's backed by lower carbon. They're called EcoSafi. And they're part of their business results in the generation of carbon offsets. And we've had a lot of conversations around the fact that there's very little financing available for entrepreneurs who will generate offsets in the future. Yeah. But don't have like a discrete project that's investable. And so that was the original idea. But after spending about a month talking to folks on all different sides of the voluntary carbon market ecosystem, I realized that I could not get conviction around the future price Mm -hmm. of voluntary carbon offsets on any kind of timeline that made sense for a lender. And so I think you can make other bets around carbon offsets. So like there's, you know, Evergrow does really interesting work around sort of buying and holding offsets and then finding buyers and playing that kind of arbitrage game. There's other funds that are starting to look at similar, call it hedge fundy models in the offset space. But as a lender, it just didn't feel like it, it really made sense. And also, I, we really wanted to tap into kind of the emerging fintech tools that enable faster, more equitable deal flow. And that seemed like a piece I wanted to hold on to. And so we said, okay, well, what lends itself well to
0: mm-hmm.
1: automation, to this kind of lending, but still maintains this like ethos of, Non-dilutive, founder-friendly, fast, simple, et cetera, and like revenue-based financing, just ticks all those boxes. That's how we. That's how we landed on that product. Got
0: it. And yeah, so for folks that might be a little less familiar with, because I come, I have some financial background too, so some of these topics are a little bit more familiar to myself. But maybe to illustrate for folks, if I, Nick, were more of like a climate technology business owner, what types of thinking or what stage of my business might results in me coming and knocking at your door and saying, hey, I think this is is interesting and could be helpful for me. Yeah, totally. So first,
1: uh, obviously for revenue-based financing, you need revenue. Mm -hmm. So you need to have a history of generating revenue and really a history of generating growing revenue over time that's largely consistent. So if you sell two things a year and you get an influx of cash, Q1 and Q3, you are not a fit for revenue financing, revenue-based financing. If you develop projects, if you're a developer, you're like not really a fit for revenue-based financing because often the revenue is at the project level. It's not at the company level. And like those revenues are owned by other investors. And so it like, creates a lot of complexity that just doesn't work for RBF. But if you're building software in climate, if you are... Building kind of smaller hardware where you might sell a lot of volume, especially hardware tied with SaaS. Like we love that space. If you are doing recurring services, so you have like a service that you provide with a decent margin, and that there's one two year contracts, really interesting for us. If you're doing direct to consumer, especially with a high repeat purchase rate, super interesting for us. And so, so if you call it fit those four boxes. And you've been generating revenue it's been growing over time call it six 12 months then you can come to us and there are some minimum hurdles that we want to see so we generally say we want to see about 20 average 25k of monthly revenue
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh that's average over the last six months that's kind of how we look at it we like to see solid gross margins because if we extract revenue at the front end and you don't have sufficient gross margin it'll break your business. So we don't want to do that. So we want to see at least 35% gross margin. We don't really place bets on companies that are going to run out of money. So they need to have some runway. (laughs) Generally, we want to see about 12 months of runway after our investment comes in. We can go a little shorter. We can also make our investment contingent on raising some bridge equity whatever. Mm -hmm. But then beyond that, I think... The other side of your question is like, when do people raise? And then what would they use this money for? Because I think both of those components are important, right? So there's we typically see folks raise money in three scenarios when it comes to RBF. Either they raise the capital in conjunction with a venture round because they want to minimize dilution and reduce overall cost of capital. So like RBF compared to equity, a quarter of the effective IRR, maybe less, uh, and obviously non-dilutive. Right, mm-hmm. so that's that's one. And actually, our first deal that we did—we're publishing a case study on it this week. Uh, we invested in them as part of kind of like a bridge and a Series A, and so we put in a, a decent chunk of money. And I mean, incredible business. So we're very happy with that deal. And another option is to raise RBF in between rounds to tilt up your trajectory of revenue growth in advance of the next venture round of fundraising. And so you still have runway, you're doing fine. And you just, it's like adding fuel to the fire so that when you do go to raise your next round, you have more revenue, therefore a higher multiple, therefore, you know, whatever. Higher afternoon, valuation. afternoon espresso. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so that's, that. I would say our second deal kind of fits into that category. So we invest in a company called Aqua Oso that does, Climate risk analysis is like a SaaS business for banks, for agricultural lenders. And they are up quite a bit out from their next round, but they like are using our money to just really double down and crank the, the machines. Mm-hmm. And then the third option is to raise our money outside of a venture dynamic altogether. So there's folks who like, don't want to raise venture, they're not venture-backable, whatever the, the, the situation is. They just say, okay, we need access to debt and we can't access call it secured debt or we don't want to. And and this is a piece that's really important is that we will never tell someone to like, try to, to take our money when they have access to cheaper capital. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, it it kind of depends on what the strings are attached to the cheaper capital. But if like, you can go raise call it inventory finance. Sure. Yeah. It will be cheaper than our money. Go raise it. If you can go raise a secured loan and you don't mind putting up a personal guarantee like good for you mm-hmm. put your house up as collateral go take it gotcha but a lot of founders can't do personal guarantees they don't have collateral in the business like they don't meet whatever criteria and so then rbf becomes really attractive i also think that in some cases you know you might have another obligation that's collateralized or secured by a personal guarantee in which case like you can't take on more debt
0: yeah because you're already committed and so rbf becomes really interesting then as well the framework that you gave around the three different scenarios in which someone especially like the timing of when someone would come to you is definitely helpful what are some of these other clients that you know before one thing that that last tangent raised for me is what is the process like as a lender and as someone who helps other people think about cost of capital and that type of stuff like how is that process for you in both raising money for your operational side of your business and then also the fund? We raised a venture around, formally
1: closed it in December of last year. I think there, the folks who invested with us really aligned with the narrative, which is that on the one hand, there's not enough money mm-hmm. in climate and a lot more money is going to be needed, You know, call it seven, 7 to 10x, probably the investment that we see today. Two, that venture is not going to fill that gap alone, and that a robust credit ecosystem is critical to the success of, call it the new climate economy. Three, that like there's been a, an incredible ex- amount of innovation in financial technology that enables folks to move faster, to make it easier for founders... To make it easier, service loans, like all the pieces are just there, if you know how to use them. Mm -hmm. And then the last part, and this is what I think got a lot of people excited, which is that there's quite a lot of institutional capital sitting on the sidelines of the climate fight, where there's often expectations of concessionary returns. So lower cost of capital returns for these institutions because they're working in climate or because they're working in diversity and inclusion. So it's like impact capital that requires a fixed income allocation. So this might be a pension fund that they might have LP investments into venture, but then they have money where they're like, we want to put this to work in climate, but we need liquidity. We need to see it pay dividends or interest or whatever on a two five year cycle as opposed to a 15 and there's not really opportunities for that money to go to work yeah and we provide that opportunity
0: yeah that's super interesting i haven't spent a ton of time thinking in the context of climate about like sure if you have an alaskan permanent fund or you know another sovereign wealth fund for instance from the middle east like they're reasonably rigid about a lot of their allocations and they have a massive amount of money but it's definitely not all going to venture and nope. that kind of ties to the point you started with which is venture is massively important i mean you all raised some as well yourself but yep it's probably what i don't know exactly the numbers but of the all of the investment in climates a relatively small portion compared to some of the other it's hard
1: to tease apart because i think a lot of folks blend like late stage private equity Mm -hmm. with venture and so i think the number so there's like 600 and i don't know 70 billion dollars that flowed into climate right on average in 2019 2020 uh according to the climate policy institute and balance sheet investing was like a third Mm -hmm. and equity was half
0: yeah i see what you're saying though it's like you see these hundred million dollar deals where it's like Really, more private equity, or it's like post IPO capital like or stuff billion like dollar deals, yeah. you
1: know, like large automotive companies that are about to SPAC and they like raise, <laughs> I don't know, whatever, <laughs> some insane right. amount of money. Like that's considered venture in the space. But yeah, I, look, we share deal flow with like close to 200 VCs. We're venture backed. Mm-hmm. There's lots of things that are wrong with venture but it's a critical product for helping to scale an ecosystem like this. Totally. You know? But having said that, I think that a lot of VCs would agree with us that often startups raise venture because they don't have other options or they'll raise, let's say you need $5 million. You could raise three of it in venture and two of it in debt, but because there's no options, you go and raise a full five in venture. And that means there's more dilution, higher cost capital for the business. Like, And also you end up spending that money on stuff where it makes no sense to apply <laughs> venture capital. So if you're spending VC money on marketing or sales or channel partner development, like stuff that generates immediate returns to the business, mm. it's a really expensive capital to use for that. Whereas what you should be doing is putting it into R and D, into growing your team, into investing in like really long term kind of value generating quote unquote assets. Yeah, and you should use debt, cheap debt. to fund growth right and so that's what we want to offer entrepreneurs in the space is like you want to pump money into growth like you shouldn't be using your venture dollars
0: yeah i'm glad we're having this conversation because hearing you talk about and again i'm you know i cover venture deals every week and get super excited about them in the space but hearing you talk about it reminds me of sifting through that report on like the 2021 like here's where all the investment in climate tech flowed and it's like XYZ percent share of it went to electric vehicles and I'm like, that's great We need those and they're sexy and it's easy to wrap your head around that and that's kind of like the corollary I see to something like venture capital versus debt markets one of them is high-flying and sexy and people want to work in it, but it's doesn't necessarily make it uh, Any more important than debt markets for instance, I mean nobody
1: announces debt deals (laughs) Like no nobody goes to TechCrunch and says, Hey, I just raised a bunch of debt. Can you do a piece on me? Yeah. Like it's very rare. Everybody announces every venture round. All the VCs tout their portfolios. What I find really interesting is that if you go to a lot of lender websites, like they won't even have their portfolios listed. (laughs) And like this is the kind of this framing this narrative, it's all part of the same problem because people don't then have a comprehensive understanding of their options, mm-hmm. and I, we think that this is actually a pretty big problem in the space. I mean, this is common in a lot of different sectors, but I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs I talk to in climate who I'm like, "Oh, you don't have to just raise venture," <laughs> and they're like, I, "I don't." Yeah, and that's why we started content series to help entrepreneurs navigate this intersection of like climate entrepreneurship and capital. We try to educate founders as much as possible we try to connect founders to other lenders as much as possible like there's times when a team really needs a different product and so we'll send them to third sphere we'll send them to lacey there's now starting to be like somewhat of a more robust ecosystem but it's still i mean there could be a hundred of us mm-hmm. and we would just be scratching the surface of this problem
0: yeah what financial technologies also go kind of in hand in hand with what you're doing based on like a lending model to, and I you've touched on this already, like part of it is speeding up the process, but I'm curious, like, especially for stuff that exists now that might not have been as easy a few years ago.
1: So I think that a key piece of this modern lending stack is the ability to access financial data without asking somebody to send you a PDF. And this is something that I think a lot of folks don't really get. Is that there's a big difference in terms of how you do diligence when you ask somebody to send you two years of PL statements, and then you have to kind of trust them, and then you have to ask them to send you physical bank statements because I don't know if anybody knows this, but you can go into Adobe and just edit a PDF, and it will match font like nobody will ever know, sure. right? And so instead, what we do is we use a we actually partner with a company called Codat which is a kind of a fintech API middle layer. And they enable us to connect to Plaid, which then connects to banks. And it, they enable us to connect to Stripe, which gives us payment data. And it allows us to connect to QuickBooks and Xero and Wave and a bunch of like, all these products that companies use to manage their business. And so when we look at a deal, we're looking at data that is not editable. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't connect to your bank account and then you falsify transactions. Like (laughs) those are your bank account transactions. Right. And so that's a really big piece of the puzzle because there's more trust that you have out the gate in what you're seeing and it's harder to manipulate. Mm -hmm. So that that's one. Two, we built application flow and that allows companies to get us the information we need very easily. It's like 10 minutes to apply for funding with us and they can connect their accounts through Kodak and then, we have a proprietary risk card analytic model that allows us to predict future revenue and build out sort of a, a risk framework of what we think the company will do and how they'll perform. Mm-hmm. Today, most of the underwriting work we do is manual. Okay. So we have an analyst team that looks at numbers, builds models. Right. We think that pretty soon we can start to automate pieces of the underwriting process certain projections certain metrics and the goal is over time to take this sort of proven lending business and automate it unlike other fintechs we didn't want to build an automated product from day one we wanted to build a really strong lending business from day one but with the understanding that the goal was to be automated in the future and we use some off-the-shelf stuff we build some stuff ourselves and eventually the goal is to go from you know a week to term sheet to 24 hours to term sheet and instead of funding taking 30 days maybe it's like less than a week that kind of flywheel kind of turning thing is where it gets really exciting because it's hard to do a billion dollars worth of lending in a year it's easier to do that when it happens with very little like human engagement
0: yeah, if you're speeding up the cycle, that yeah. definitely makes sense. So that kind of speaks to how you improve like the speed and also like ease for founders who are looking for financing. I'm interested what, and one other lever that become clear to me in this conversation alone is really important to you, is that kind of more diversity and equity inclusion perspective. How do you integrate that into the lending model and potentially also into some of the technology that you're using? So there's a
1: few ways in which we prioritize supporting underrepresented founders so first and foremost when we formed the company we formed ourselves as a public benefit corporation Mm. and as part of our core mission we have this idea that we are going to support underrepresented founders diverse teams folks serving marginalized communities like part of our core mission it is part of our company charter we have to do it Mm -hmm. so that's one two when we built our analytical model and our risk card and our credit policy, we said, okay, we will actually give extra points mm. to teams that meet one of these, one or more of these three criteria. And the three criteria are either there's a an underrepresented founder, there's a team that's at least 50% diverse, mm-hmm. or company serves primarily marginalized communities. And so... Within the sort of total calculus of risk, additional points are granted to a team for meeting those criteria because there's there's actually quite a lot of evidence that like if you do those things, generally you perform better, and so it makes sense to quantitatively favor. And then the last piece is that we spend a lot of time trying to build pipeline within call it BIPOC founder communities, within women founder communities, within other underrepresented founder communities and when we do cold outreach to startups to say hey we think you're a fit for our funding model like we generally prioritize reaching out to those kinds of teams because the world is so skewed today towards funding privileged white guys that like inbound we can we'll take whatever we get but outbound at least we can try to make an effort and and actually our pipeline right now 70 percent of the companies that we are either looking at actively underwriting have like long-term discussions with 70 percent meet one of those three
0: criteria which is pretty high yeah that's great i was gonna add that was gonna be my next question is like has that already flown through to the handful of deals that you've already done Yeah. So we formally announced
1: two transactions and the first meets all three criteria. And the second one, they, I would say, you know, that team is working toward to build more diversity within the company, but they, the end beneficiary is like farmers all over middle America. And those are generally folks not that don't fit the like, I would say they fit the marginalized community definition pretty well. So yeah, I mean, it's say 50-50
0: is pretty good (laughs) for two deals. Good start. Yeah. And it's a small sample size. So that brings me also just circling all the way back to the climate impact question. You and I are both super clear on what's needed to get to a better place from a climate perspective in terms of investment. But I imagine there's listeners out there who could benefit from an illustration of like we fund X company and how does that translate into measurable impact for the climate? Yeah, this is a great question and one that we think about and talk about a lot
1: because as a fintech in climate, we don't have direct impact at all. And often the folks we are funding don't have direct impact either. Mm. And so we have to get really creative with how we think about attribution, measurement, because also our our lenders have pretty strict requirements around impact reporting. And so we actually built out a whole impact framework where we say, look, we'll look at these metrics, which we can directly measure. We'll also collect this data from our portfolio companies that ladders up to the SDGs. And in the end, we have a pretty simple screen that today is somewhat subjective. Eventually it will be automated, which is Do we think this company is contributing to the new climate economy? Mm -hmm. And so if it's most of the time, it's very obvious. You either are or you aren't. In edge cases, we'll decide as a collective, do we think this fits? And can we make the argument to our board, which acts as our investment committee today, but also to our lenders? You know, hey, if we came to our funders for Enduring Climate Fund 1 and said, hey, we backed this company, would they be like... WTF? Or would they say, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) And so the companies need to either directly contribute to or support abatement, so reducing emissions, removal, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, or adaptation and resilience. And because we work across all those three, we also can't have a single metric that we look for, like tons, gigatons, or whatever. That's not our game. And we also don't care about the size of the climate impact, because to some degree, we think that all of these puzzle pieces are necessary towards a just and equitable climate transition. Sure. And so whether you're reducing, whether you're supporting better agricultural lending by measuring climate risk, or you're enabling the deployment of renewable energy in emerging markets, or you're creating low-carbon toothpaste or diapers, whatever it is, if you built your business around a future in which we can all survive, come talk to us.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's compelling. I think if you focused more narrowly again on something like trying to maximize how you're, Capital translates into carbon emissions reductions or something, you'd probably miss things that have a lot of other co benefits or just are important in their own right. Yeah,
1: totally. And I I also think that I think focusing too much on companies that are just creating direct abatement benefits, I think, misses to some degree the complexity and like holistic nature of the problem. Supporting a software company that enables the deployment of solar is, I would argue, in some cases, more important than supporting the people who build the panels.
0: Yeah, they might help hundreds of solar companies do their deployments. That's right. And if they make it 20% easier or whatever, it's not that neat, but that's pretty, pretty huge. That's right. That's right. Different line of questioning for me. There's some interesting stuff going on in markets. As difficult for many companies. Are you already seeing folks that might have looked for venture throw their hat in the ring and talk to you all? What are you kind of seeing on that front? Uh, I think that first,
1: from all the data I've seen, the call it pre-seed, seed, series A ecosystem is not yet seeing a dramatic shift in valuations or yeah, investment.
0: I agree. I mean, the timeline on that is. Yeah, it might mm-hmm. change.
1: I think a downturn makes sense. I mean, look, the last, I don't know how many years were wild. (laughs) And in particular, like post mid 2020 through end of 2021, the funding ecosystem was just wild.
0: Yeah. Everything was going bizarrely quickly. Obviously. Yeah. Obviously
1: when, you know, public markets shut the bed, there's going to be a pullback and people will start saying, okay, well, if this exit multiple is not likely, then cool, the next round won't be as big. And then the next round won't be, and like preceding round won't be as big. And so maybe we should, instead of doing a $15 million post for this precede with a, a deck and no traction, we'll do 12, <laughs> right? Yeah. So having said that, so I, we refer a lot of startups to a lot of VCs and one company that we introduced to a, a lot of investors One investor sat them down and said, look, we think you're asking for too high a valuation in given current market conditions. Sure. And another investor the same day sat them down and said, you should raise double the amount on (laughs) double the valuation because it's insane and you can do it and blah, blah, blah. And so I think it's all just like subjective perspective. But what it does for us, which is great, is that there's this attitude In general, that like VCs are pulling back. That's awesome for me. Whether it's true or not, if people are not getting the pricing that they want in the market and they're getting diluted more, they're going to want non dilutive capital. Like, we're here. We're not going anywhere. (laughs) You know, you want to raise venture and raise some money from us? Great. You want to raise venture, come to us later? Great. I don't really care. We will come in at any point as long as you meet our. Financial criteria. And so, whether you're raising around or not, whether you're getting a valuation, whether people believe you have a TAM, whether they think you're like cool enough, irrelevant for us. And so, that's all great.
0: Yeah. That was my intuition. That was why I asked. I'm cautiously optimistic about three things. One, hopefully, and I, beyond just hoping, I do think that this will be the case. I don't think climate tech will slow down as much as other stuff because the world fundamentally needs it more. And Secondly, I do also hope as you kind of pointed to now that if markets fundamentally shift, people will be more receptive to alternative forms of financing. That's a solid outcome yep. even if there are plenty of negative outcomes that go alongside less venture funding. I mean, I think you can just
1: compare the US to Europe. Europe has a much called weaker VC environment and the alternative credit ecosystem is like 10x a size. Right. And so when the U.S. venture (laughs) environment gets
0: weaker, then great, we'll be here. Mm -hmm. What's the hardest hire that you have to make in the next 12 months? Oh, man,
1: that's a good question. I hope I answer it right, given that we're (laughs) going to raise eventually and VCs will ask me the same question. (laughs) Well, it's practice round. Yeah, I think we need to make a few hires. I think we need to probably beef up our internal cfo credit Mm -hmm. Um, especially as we start to branch out into other products and we start to look at a more diverse set of prospective customers as we start to sort of build that out more i also think that probably we need to double down on the efforts that bring us inbound demand and so whether that's like a marketing content hire whether that's a growth Kind of like partnerships hire. And so all of our hiring, all of our focus is how do we expand the funnel? How do we do deals? How do we build the technology that allows us to automate the process? So that's probably
0: where we'll invest the most. Yeah, fantastic. I'm excited to uh, see what you all accomplish in the intervening six months before we have you back on the show. (laughs) Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Anything else that you want to share or especially also calls to action? You know, I'm sure there's folks listening in that are excited about some of what you're doing or know people that could potentially benefit from it. So what are the best ways to, uh, to engage? I mean, I think, look, if you are building in climate and you're
1: post-revenue, we have money for you. <laughs> so come take it. That's call to action one. If you aren't, but you know people who are, tell them. <laughs> right? Like help your friends raise better capital. And if they don't know that they have options outside of BC, there's a lot of resources out there that they can use to get educated. It doesn't have to come from us. I don't really care. Right? Like go get better money to build your climate business. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that you should always optimize for dilution of co- or cost of capital. Like there's, there's a lot of considerations that go into how you capitalize your business, but be thoughtful about how you do that and if you don't know how reach out get help there's so many founders in this community that are willing to give their time and their networks to help their peers succeed this is one of the things that's like most exciting to me about the climate ecosystem is that people here are like holy shit the world's on fire and we have to like work together and it doesn't really make sense for us to keep stuff to ourselves Mm -hmm. We were able to get the traction on our pre-seed round that we got out the gate because another founder made like 40
0: EC intros for us. Yeah.
1: And I, I had spent half an hour talking to him.
0: It's exceptional. Yeah, all good on my end. Anything else that you wanted to hit that you feel like we didn't? No, this is great, man. Really good conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in. And don't miss next week's episode by subscribing on Spotify, Google, Apple, or wherever else you listen to podcasts.